Our scripture reading this morning is from Ezekiel chapter 34, and we'll read verses 11 through 16 before Matt comes. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see you all. Thanks for joining us. If you're visiting and I haven't met you, my name is Matt, and I pastor here. Um... Being a pastor can be a really odd line of work for a variety of, amen, Steve knows, several of you know, um, for a variety of reasons. I think maybe the thing I hate the most is, and this is not just going to be a gripe session for me, but I think the thing I hate the most, or one of the things I hate the most, is the change in demeanor when people discover that, yes, I am a man of the cloth. Nanette and I were in Mexico last month on a pastoral retreat. We, we stayed at a resort that was filled with nothing but pastors. So as you can imagine, it was a wild place. <laughs> we, we had a great time, though. We had several friends with us on that trip. And uh, the last night, we went out together uh, into the town for dinner. And a Canadian man sitting, which is irrelevant that he was Canadian, except that he was an English speaker. Um, a Canadian man sitting at the table next to us got up to leave and, and stopped to chat with us a bit because he perceived that we were Americans. I don't know exactly what gave it away. Perhaps it was the fact that several people in our party were, were singing along to the Pitbull song being pumped ever so loudly through the restaurant's stereo. By the way, I was not one of those singing. I, it was the first time I had heard the song. Just want to maintain some of my street cred. Um, anyway, this man stopped to talk with us. He shared what he was doing in Mexico, threw in a few expletives for good measure, and then asked why we were there. And I explained that we were on a pastoral retreat. And he immediately did the sign of the cross cleaned up his language, and started talking about the church he was a part of. <laughs> when he recognized me as a minister, his whole demeanor changed. He started talking about his spiritual pedigree, as though I cared at all about that. I was at, Truly, I was much more interested in who he really was moments before my identity was revealed. It is one of the strangest 
parts of this particular line of work. I mean, what other vocation prompts that sort of a change in demeanor? Now, this is not exactly analogous, but in the parable that we're going to read from Jesus today, near the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus addresses two different groups of people who had both mistaken his identity, or actually, maybe more accurately, had missed his identity altogether. And I wonder, like the man we encountered in that taco stand that night, perhaps they too would have drastically altered their actions had they realized who they were encountering. But then again, I actually wonder if it's not that sort of surface-level change in behavior that Jesus was most interested in, but rather a change in affection, which would have then revolutionized behavior. On the church calendar, today is referred to as Christ the King Sunday. You've probably started picking up hints at that theme throughout the songs we sang together and the prayers we prayed, as well as our scripture reading from Ezekiel, Christ the King Sunday. This is the final Sunday of the liturgical year. Next week, we begin a brand new year together with the beginning of Advent. We're, we're going to talk a bit more about this next week, but as a congregation, we try to follow the rhythms of the church calendar with its various seasons and holy days, and, and today is one of those holy days. The, the emphasis today is on the fact that central to Christian faith is the confession that Jesus Christ is King, Christ the King Sunday. Now, this is a relatively new addition to the church calendar, an addition that was only made about 100 years ago by Pope Pius XI in 1925. But perhaps that historical context is significant. We could think about some of the turbulence globally at that time in history. And we find the church in the midst of that turbulence, in the face of competing claims of power, we find the church reminding herself that Christ is king. A reminder that the church probably needs in every era, including the 21st century. I think this is maybe the most appropriate way for us to end every year, reminding ourselves that Christ is king and will one day rule, his, uh, his kingdom will be established and made known to all people. So today's text from Matthew 25 takes our minds to some of these themes of the reign and rule of Christ in the age to come. We're going to pick it up in verse 31. I'm going to read through the entirety of this section. It's pretty lengthy, so, so stick with me if you want. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, 
Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thanks be to God. But seriously, thanks be to God. One reason we declare the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, after every scripture reading is that we are not only thankful for the encouraging, uplifting, easy texts, the ones that adorn countless coffee mugs at Mardell, but we are also thankful for the difficult ones, ones that we may not know exactly what to make of, and this perhaps is one of those challenging texts. There are some uncomfortable realities expressed. Furthermore, on on one hand, it seems in some ways, to go against the grain of some earlier parables we've read in Matthew's gospel. Many of the parables Matthew records focus on God's kingdom of grace, the fact that you can't do anything to deserve or earn admittance into this kingdom. All you can do is receive it as a gift. But here, Jesus ends... Not only this parable, but really his teaching in general before his death. This is the final section of teaching that Matthew records for us before Jesus makes his journey to the cross. And so we find his teaching ending with this judgment of eternal punishment. I mean, it really goes out with a bang. And it's one that is seemingly connected to our good works. What do we do with this? So we find Jesus highlighting two groups of people here. We have goats and sheep. After being separated and informed whether it is going to be reward or punishment, both of them are shocked to discover that they had encountered Jesus himself at various points throughout their lives. Sheep are blessed and receive their inheritance based on the tender care they expressed to him. And they're confounded. When exactly did we do that? We never saw you thirsty or hungry or naked or in prison or sick. And the goats have almost exactly the same response. How did we fail to care for you, to feed you, to visit you? To clothe you. And Jesus says, whatever you did or did not do for the least of these, you did or did not do 
to me. And in the parable, reward or a lack thereof seems connected to that tender care, either expressed or withheld from Jesus himself. What do we make of this? Like many of the parables from Jesus, on many levels, this one too is confounding. And and there are so many different directions that we could go with this and things that I think are important to think about and wrestle with. Uh, There are ways of interpreting this text, some that are helpful and some that are not nearly as helpful. So today, instead of just offering my opinion on exactly how this should be interpreted, I instead want to simply explore some common ways this is understood, but ultimately ways that I think may be unhelpful, and then hopefully bring to the surface some some healthier or more helpful ways of reading it. The first unhelpful reading or application of this text is to use this as an excuse for me to begin distinguishing between the sheep and the goats. To think that I can be a reliable judge of character in that way, to think that I can make those judgments accurately and faithfully, I think is misplaced confidence, if not arrogance. And I think we find that hinted at in this text itself. We find the idea represented that we don't have the ability to accurately make those determinations due to our human limitations. I mean, even in this text, the goats and the sheep themselves are completely unaware that they are behaving in ways that place them squarely into one of those groups. So this is the first thing I I want to stress. If we read a parable like this and it encourages us to do the separating, if it encourages us to take up the responsibility to become judge and to slap a label on everybody we see based on our perceived standard of righteousness, I think we are misunderstanding the point of the parable. And I think this is always a temptation for us to be the ones that can identify who is in the evil group, and I am never in that group, of course. I want to be the one who, in the end, comes out on top. There's a play by T.S. Eliot called The Cocktail Party in which he writes this. Half of the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. He says they don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. I think this seems to be an overwhelming human proclivity to condemn or judge others, maybe even to the point of longing to eliminate them. And perhaps that tendency stems from a fear of being condemned or judged ourselves. So if I can condemn somebody else, maybe that will alleviate some of the existential dread I feel at the thought of the judgment I too will face. So first, I want to suggest that we must not read this in a way that positions ourselves as the judges of the world. One of the things we remind ourselves of today, Christ the King Sunday, is that Jesus alone, as King of the cosmos, is not only Lord and ruler, but is the only right judge. At the beginning of this section, 
we see the Son of Man uh, coming in his glory, sitting on his glorious throne, gathering the nations and executing judgment. So, uh, on the other hand, there's that unhelpful way of reading it that places us as the judges of everybody. We also, though, must not avoid um, or we, we must not ignore the insistence from Jesus himself that there will be judgment. This is something that is central to Christian faith. We affirm that belief in the Apostles' Creed, which is perhaps the most succinct summary of Orthodox Christian thought. In it, we affirm that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is judge. In her book, The Crucifixion, Fleming Rutledge put it this way. She said, for all that is wrong in the world, a cosmic reckoning is required. For all that is wrong in the world, a cosmic reckoning is required. Jesus will judge. And lest we think this is just an idea that the church established in order to secure and maintain control over the the people, the, the idea of God's judgment pervades our scriptures. Old and New Testament, perhaps most notably, though, on the lips of Jesus himself. We see it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, on that day, many will come and say, Lord, Lord, look at all of these things we accomplished, all of these things we did. And the response is, I I never knew you. Depart from me. Or basically, if we jump to Matthew 25, the, the chapter we're in, the This pervades the whole chapter from the first parable in this series of parables, the parable of the ten virgins, to the parable we looked at last week, the parable of the talents, and then this one of final judgment. It's an important theme that must not be overlooked simply because of the discomfort we feel at the idea or maybe the mistaken notion that we have progressed beyond those primitive ideas. But we also must always remember that as the king of the universe, Jesus is the only right and worthy judge. And as such, where we can't trust our own judgments, where we can't trust the reliability of the distinctions we make, we do trust that Jesus' judgment is pure, just, and true. Where our judgments fail, his do not. We long for the promise of justice that is voiced throughout our scriptures. Even in our scripture reading from Ezekiel, I will feed them in justice. We trust that the judgments of our Lord are good and pure. Another quite popular way of interpreting this text that I want to suggest we should avoid ultimately boils down to salvation by works. To think that my good works, specifically in this text, directed towards the least of these, that those good works are ultimately the source of my salvation. So if I want to be included or as a member of the sheep section of the flock, I better buckle down and give food to the hungry drink to the thirsty, welcome to the stranger, or else I won't be accepted by God. But again, this parable, in my view, is not about filling the ledger with enough good works 
to make ourselves acceptable to God. The obvious problem with that reading is that it turns salvation into something I either earn or forfeit because I was or wasn't good enough. But the good news of Jesus Christ is regardless of our inability to be good enough, in Jesus, God has redeemed us and brought us into his flock. So I don't think this parable is about our good works, but rather our love for the king, which revolutionizes our behavior. Our love for the king radically alters everything in our lives. Our faith in Jesus alone as king is what makes us willing recipients of the gift of eternal life. The parable here says, come, you who are blessed, take your inheritance. It's an inheritance. It is not reward for effort or success. It is not payment for completed work. It is inheritance for children of the king. Last week, as we looked at the parable of talents, we found a reminder to trust the good character of our God, to trust God's abundant goodness. And how do we grow in our trust that God is good? I think in large part that growing trust comes through repeated encounters with God. Because in encountering God, we not only discover who God is, but we grow in our ability to trust God. Kenneth Tanner, who pastors a church in Michigan, put it this way. He said, a lack of encounters with God could cause us to make a false sketch, to fail to capture his actual likeness. So we learn to trust God as we encounter God routinely. And what does this parable then teach us about encounters with God? Well, on one hand, we find that those encounters often happen in quite unexpected places. Jesus says we encounter God in Jesus Christ in the poor, in the prisoner, in the stranger, in the naked, in the hungry, in the thirsty. Christ has so radically identified with those at the margins that the two are not even distinguishable in this story. And so as we encounter God in Jesus Christ, we naturally begin then to see and serve the least of these because a love for our King, Jesus Christ, cannot be distinguishable for our love for others. Mother Teresa, when asked how she faithfully engaged in her life's work, work that was often thankless and, and work that was often difficult to sustain, how, how in the world did you spend your life doing what you did. And she held up her hand and began counting successfully as she put up each finger successively, not successfully. She began counting successively as she put up each finger. You did it to me. You did it to me. While a life of service 
to those at the margins of society is not a good work to be done in order to be accepted by God. It is perhaps a useful barometer of the condition of our hearts and whether or not we are falling more in love with Jesus. Are we living in close communion with Jesus? Well, how do we see those who Jesus radically identifies with? Are we living in close communion with Jesus? How do we serve those who Jesus identifies with? You did it to me. Pentecostal theologian Jackie Johns recently offered this advice. He said, look beyond those who appear to have the favor of God. We, we might think about this in, in relation to this parable, our inability to make reliable judgments. Look beyond those who appear to have the favor of God to find those who are close to God and stay close to them. We may wrongly judge the favor of God by our own desires. Those who are close to God may make us uncomfortable, especially when they suffer for God, but stay close. Again, this is not about striving. This is not about working or making sure that we're doing the right kind of work and focusing on the right kind of people in order to be close to or loved by God. Instead, the script has been flipped as we spend time dwelling with Jesus Christ, learning to recognize him, learning how to not make false sketches of our king, learning how to love him, learning again how to embrace life with him, that change in affection revolutionizes behavior. It works on us from the inside out. Welcome into the kingdom of Christ is not payment for good behavior. Rather, behavior, serving in the context of this story, serving those Jesus identifies with, flows out of a heart that knows and loves the king. Abiding faith in Jesus Christ, reception of Jesus, reveals whether our hearts desire life with him in his kingdom. May we be a people, may we become a people who are so captured by the beauty of Jesus and a desire to be close to Jesus that our lives are constantly, continually being renewed our eyes are constantly, continually being opened to those at the margins to offer our lives a service. Would you stand as we prepare to celebrate around the table of our king? I want to say a prayer and then we'll gather around the table, celebrate the life we have in Jesus Christ. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. I'll invite you to Come to the front. When you get to the front, there will be somebody here to speak over you the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. Let's say a prayer by way of invitation. Lord Jesus, we rejoice today in that declaration that you are king that you are a good king that we can trust. We trust that your judgments are pure 
and true that you are the only right and worthy judge. And as we seek to encounter you, both in this table, in our relationships, in those at the margins of society, We pray that you would continue to draw us closer to your heart. Open our eyes to your presence in those unexpected places. Reveal your true character to us and enable us to live into your life as participants of your kingdom under your good reign. So we pray, almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?